remain standing and you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 3. And we'll be reading and preaching today from verses 1 through 8, John 3, 1 through 8. Hear now God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, and this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's so good uh, to be here with you today and continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And I would wager that some of you, if not all of you, like to periodically uh, go through your family albums, your scrapbooks that you've collected and made over the years. Perhaps for some of you, it goes on for, for decades. Pages of physical pictures to look back on to see the transformation of yourself uh, or your family members and you know, the growth of your family loved ones and so forth and to reminisce upon all those years that have gone by. Perhaps some of you younger listeners uh, might not know what a family album or a scrapbook is, uh, what it actually looks like, but you have your phone, and we go to photos, and we'll see probably not just 10 or 20 or 30, but hundreds and hundreds of photos that go back many, many years uh, or, you know, stored on your computer to reminisce, and again, hopefully fondly, to see how much you've changed from one chapter to the next well, 2,000 years ago, of course, they didn't have pictures, but I'm sure they had some type of system, right, of collecting uh, knickknacks and uh, maybe writing things down uh, or some sentimental kind of things that would help them store some of the memories of life's journey. And I wonder if today's man in today's story had one too, the man being named Nicodemus. He perhaps thought his conversation would be a short, innocent, a nonchalant encounter, maybe a nonchalant, insignificant moment in his life. Or little did he realize this was the beginning of a life-altering, otherworldly change of his own life. And so coming off the heels of chapter 2, you could even just flip there, where at the end there, Jesus does not entrust himself to people who come clamoring after him, even perhaps outwardly saying that they actually believe in him. Look at all the signs that you're doing at Passover. They were mesmerized by that. He became an overnight sensation, so to say. And we realized from two weeks ago when we were preaching there that Jesus didn't entrust uh, himself to them because he knew what was in man's heart. Man was saying, oh, you know, because you're doing all these things, we're just going to sign me up. I'm for you. I'm going to entrust myself. And Jesus said, I'm not going to entrust myself to you because I know what's in your heart. And so today we are introduced to a new chap, uh, character. And as we go through the passage, we're going to organize the text with three questions, a little bit different from what I usually do. 
But for this week, three questions, and I'll repeat these as we go along. It's number one, is being favorable towards Jesus enough? This is a critical question for us today even. Is being favorable towards Jesus enough? And that'll be from verse one through three. Number two is what does salvation require? What does salvation require? Verses four through five. And finally, the third question will be, why is salvation so difficult to comprehend? Why is salvation so difficult to comprehend? That'll be our last verses, verse six through eight. Now, again, I'll repeat these as we go along. So number one, is being favorable towards Jesus enough? Is being favorable towards Jesus enough? Look again at verse one through three. Now, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these things that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, one of the benefits of week in and week out expository preaching through a book or maybe even a set of chapters, and I'm perfectly, you know, I'm I'm fine with preaching one-off passages here and there, but the benefit of preaching this way is that the context from previous passages are fresher on your minds. And so John the Apostle, the author of of this gospel, certainly must have had a reason to introduce this new character first as a man. He could have simply just used his name over and over again, but he says a man this, a man that, and so on. Was John giving us a clear example of what he just wrote about in chapter 2, that Jesus could not trust in man, for he knew what was in them. He knew mankind was prone to just surface-level affection, surface-level admiration, and even excitement. And just because they were shouting their praises toward Jesus because of his signs, we talked about this two weeks ago, some of them probably later on went to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And so let's briefly go over the anatomy of who Nicodemus was. It says here he's a Pharisee. A ruler of the Jews. Now, some of you are familiar, uh, really familiar with the history of, of Pharisees from the scriptures, but those who might be newer to the faith, let me read one, uh, one scholar's summation of what the Pharisees were about, who were considered legalists. This author wrote, quote, The fundamental distortion of legalism is the belief that one can earn one's way into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees believed that due to their status as children of Abraham, and to their scrupulous adherence to the law, they were the children of God. At the core, this was a denial of the gospel, close quote. You see, if these Pharisees were leaders of the Jews, Jesus then coming onto the scene must have simply alarmed them and maybe even angered many or maybe most of them. But it seems this Pharisee was not cut completely from the same cloth as the other, something was stirring in his heart. And so he goes out to seek, I need to talk to this Jesus. And he goes at night. Some scholars think because he's, he's too cowardly, he's too afraid to be seen with Jesus and to be judged. But others say that he was respecting Jesus, who was a, a rabbi, from bothering him during the day where most rabbis would be studying or teaching. Still others suggest what, whatever the motive of Nicodemus, we don't really fully know, of course, This is a great picture of someone coming from darkness about to be exposed to wonderful light. 
And as we've been discussing, signs are a huge deal for the Jews. We're seeing this throughout, even in the beginning portions of John. They wanted to confirm the true Messiah had come. It's not necessarily a bad thing to say, are you the long-awaited, anointed Messiah? Or in the Greek, the Christ, the anointed one. But the problem was, it was a certain type of Messiah that they wanted to see. To bring the nation of Israel power and rule in their lifetime on earth, not caring much for any spiritual kingdom. But what, what are you going to do for us here and now? But Nicodemus might have right motives in searching for the long-awaited Messiah. Nobody could do what you're doing, says Jesus, unless God is, is with him. But we can't know that for sure. What we can know for sure is that your interest in Jesus your admiration, maybe even your fandom of Jesus, even your favor towards him and his signs is not enough because that can just be on the surface. I'm not going to dive too much into this, but we know who Gandhi was. And of course, he was not a Christian, but he didn't really have a lot of problems with Jesus. Probably even admired him, but he said I, the problem was, was with his followers, with, with Christians. But was that enough for Gandhi that, hey, I, I respect the man and his teachings and his character, et cetera, et cetera. Is that enough? But Jesus responds to Nicodemus that, he says, unless, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was thinking he knew everything about the kingdom of God. That's what he was probably coming in with his thoughts. He was a leader of God's religion and so forth. But Jesus was already categorizing him and others, maybe there were some even with him, as outside of the kingdom because they were not yet born again. Now, born again literally is translated in the Greek, born from above, meaning as an, you know, born from some supernatural intervention, a, a rebirth. But notice in verse 2, Jesus uses the word unless, meaning that this is absolutely necessary. He says this twice in today's passage. Basically, all of you that obsessively seek signs or you all that think you have the automatic right as children of God, you can only see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. But Robin, my, my father and his father and his father and his father and so forth, were all believers. And so doesn't that mean I'm just kind of automatically a child? And Jesus would say, no, you, every single person needs to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is centered around God, sending Jesus, his one and only begotten son, culminating in the person and finished work of Jesus the Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe. This is the son of God coming onto the scene. And if they reject Christ, they reject it all, including the kingdom of God. Notice how Jesus was not swayed by fanfare or lofty praise or celebrity status, even from Nicodemus, this ruler of Jews. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things to get more followers or in today's you know, context, get more likes or subscribers. Because there are those that come onto the public scene, even in our world today, a celebrity, a politician, an athlete, and as soon as they see a camera around, they'll dart over in front of that so that they can get more and more exposure. Jesus was not like this. He was not swayed by the spotlight of shallow celebrity. Remember, because Jesus knew what was in man's heart. Have you ever had a friend or family member that when you approach them 
and you just want to just talk about what happened last night or just what's going on at school, and then somehow, it could be a parent, it could be a grandparent, it could be a coworker, they take that just simple conversation, flip it on its head, and, and just speaks very profoundly and very deeply, and you're just moved by that. Well, this is what Jesus does all the time with people coming up to him, challenging him, or maybe even having genuine, simple questions. But back to Nicodemus's group, the Pharisees, I'll continue what this author says. He says, the Pharisees were guilty of another form of legalism. They added their own laws to the law of God. Their quote-unquote traditions were raised to a status equal to the law of God. They robbed people of their liberty and put chains on them where God had left them free. That kind of legalism did not end with the Pharisees. It has also plagued the church in every generation, end quote. That last part is why we need to pay close attention to this narrative and to also be warned. So are you saying, just like Nicodemus, Robin, e even if I try to follow God's law, be a good, moral, upright per person, be quote-unquote religious, that that doesn't qualify me to be saved? Well, that's exactly what we always say and what Jesus alludes to in the next two verses. But the gospel demands more than simply admiring or being favorable towards Jesus or just living a good old moral life because you can only be saved by grace through the gift of faith. And so, one, so we then naturally come to our second question. Number two, then what does salvation require? Number two, what does salvation require? And let's pick it up in verse Four through five, if being favorable towards Jesus is not enough, then what needs to happen? Nicodemus said to him, verse four, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is quite literally missing the analogy Jesus is using. Nicodemus is only thinking from the fleshly perspective, from the physical realm that he is in and from. He does not equate any of this to the spiritual at this point. You know, I have a friend who recently gave birth. She had a rough pregnancy, a rough birth at the hospital. And she's just, you know, I think always wanted multiple children. So she was so glad everything was over. She quickly posted online a picture of the baby. And she was like, I ain't doing this again. <laughs> I imagine Nicodemus's mother, she was there. She's like, no, that's not going to happen. Even if it was possible, that's not going to happen, Nicodemus. So in verse 5, Jesus answered again with a little more detail by adding born of water and the spirit. And instead of you see the kingdom, he says enter the kingdom of God, essentially meaning the same thing. This most likely didn't have to do with baptism, though, the water portion, because that wasn't instituted yet by Christ for the church. But in our reading earlier in today's service, I'm going to read one verse earlier in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, where the prophet records, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what was probably meant by water. And then, of course, spirit referring to the work of the Holy Spirit to perform the actual miracle of rebirth, of being born again. So salvation requires one to be born again, but let's unpack what that really is. Being born again, or also known as regeneration or rebirth, is found in so many other parts of the scriptures. First Peter 1.23 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Also, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, talking about being made alive. That's another way of saying uh, being born again. For God being, Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, friends, regeneration in the Bible, this mercy that God makes you alive together with Christ actually precedes any even mental, cognitive uh, assertion that I, I want to believe. Any hard tug to say, you know what, today is going to be the day I want to place my trust in Jesus Christ, always preceding that faith, that belief that is a gift from God, is regeneration. God making your heart new. Yes, your faith is actually your faith. It's not your mom's, it's not your dad's, but your faith is yours alone. But the faith comes as a gift from God himself, the author and perfecter of that faith. But the mystery is that before we can even utter the words, I believe, he works in your heart to regenerate so that you completely have a new heart before the Lord, and, and this sets us into a new trajectory. It's not just a new birth and then just, okay, everything else is the same. Now, I was reading the Westminster Confession of Faith, part of our church's constitution and formative document that is subservient, of course, to the Holy Scriptures, but it's helpful to summarize what we find in the Scriptures. Chapter 10 in the Confession says, God calls us, meaning he regenerates us, by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace." Again, just a summary of kind of what I was alluding to earlier. All the things that we say, but how come I'm, I'm having this uh, affection for Christ and uh, I want to live for him and I want to follow him. I want to believe, I want to place my trust. It's, it's because God is, has already done that in the heart. And that is why it all makes sense. Sure, you know, we can pinpoint some of you maybe a certain day or a year to say, I, I, I place my trust in Christ, but regeneration happens in a moment. And then we kind of catch up to that in our conversion process. You know, because I grew up in the church, I don't know exactly when I first truly believed and placed my trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't really matter to me as long as my heart has been regenerated. Because that means regeneration is all about God's grace, right? Unmerited favor is what we sometimes define grace as. Unmerited. You can't work for it. You can't do anything in our own right to then want to believe. But God has to first do the work in us. Just like you had zero input into your own physical birth, you have zero influence or input in your own spiritual rebirth. I was really helped by that theologian that wrote that. Just like you had zero input into your own physical birth, you have zero influence or input 
in your own spiritual rebirth. We don't work up enough spiritual credit before God or enough moralism to meet God halfway and then he takes us home to save us. That would then mean God can only save us halfway and not fully. And that goes entirely against the concept of grace. It goes against entirely that God is all-powerful too. God must do this work in your heart first for you then to see the kingdom of God, to even repent, to believe, to even follow. All this comes from God's work in you. And so finally to our third question then, why is salvation then so difficult to comprehend? Why is salvation so difficult to comprehend? Look at your Bibles in verse 6 through 8. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, Jesus is distinguishing between what we naturally see and respond to, our natural birth, being born in the flesh, and of course we know that that means being born in sin because of Genesis 3 and the fall. So he's distinguishing that. But Jesus puts the emphasis now by saying, you must, you must. Earlier he was saying, unless one is born. But now he's saying, you must be born again. Scholars point out that if you could see in the original Greek text here, you'd see the first you talking in verse 7. He's talking about singular you, uh, Nicodemus. But then in the you must be born again, in English it's really, it's, it's, hard, it's, it's by context. But in other languages, they'll, they'll put a little... Uh, uh, you know, extra letters here and there or whatever to say, oh, this is plural. So if we can translate it uh, accurately, it's, look, you, Nicodemus, this is what I told you, you must, it's you all, everyone must be born again. I'm not just picking on you, Nicodemus, or select people from the Pharisees, but everyone needs to be born again. And I was thinking about this today, you know, we, we don't like anyone saying to us, you must about anything. Those of you guys who are in school, you, you guys extra are annoyed by, you must do this. We've almost developed an analogy to the pointed phrase, as in, really, is there only one way? Do I really have to do that? Oh, I like options, especially in the 21st century. We have so many options. Sometimes we're even confused about the options, but we like having the options there. But Jesus is being countercultural and saying, you must be born again. There's no negotiating here. There's no, but didn't you see what I did there? Didn't you know what I was thinking there? Isn't that enough? No, you must be born again. Being so matter of fact, there is no options before the kingdom of God. You must. It's only when God removes that veil, that blindfold over our eyes, do we then realize how glorious it is to be born again and not, you know, dragging our feet, oh, I, I have to do this, I, ha I, I need to be born again. But no, how beautiful it is to be born again. You'd say, of course we must. And of course this is of God and of course this is truly good. And even though we can't see the wind nor command the wind to do, you know, our, our bidding, the same is true of the Holy Spirit's work in sinners saved by grace. We can see the after effects of the Spirit's work in you, but we cannot see him personally with our eyes. The same thing with wind. 
And I'm sure this has happened at some point in your life when thinking about a sibling, a son or a daughter or a relative or coworker or a very close friend, why and how they could reject the gospel so persistently after months and months, some of you years and years praying for them and, and trying to share the gospel with them, no matter how hard you tried to explain the ins and outs of the gospel, they still reject it and you inwardly throw up your arms in the air with frustration and even sadness, sometimes even anger. And I just want to reassure you and I just want to comfort your soul here. And Some of you guys have weighty guilt even that you carry around because, you know, you couldn't convince your mother or father to believe in Jesus or you have a brother or sister or your son or daughter and you say, what did I do wrong? Well, the answer does not lie in your ability or inability to get every last articulation right in the gospel presentation. Of course, we want to learn to defend our faith and to share our faith appropriately is always a, a good and helpful thing. But the reason why salvation is so difficult to comprehend to the average person out there is because this is a deeply spiritual thing and not fleshly. You see, in our world, in our fallen state, in our fallen minds and in our beings, the default setting is so set in its ways, no amount of man-centered effort or expertise will ever convince someone to be saved. This is operating in the world of the flesh. Years ago, a successful businessman was attending our church, and he, and he said to me rather frankly, hey, Robert, I usually get what I want. And he was wanting something in the church that was, in my mind, erroneous or wrong. And he says, you know what, I, I, it was almost like a threat. I usually get what I want. Well, in our flesh, we think we can just make things happen because we're used to making things happen. And we've all been there, not just as businessmen, but all of us who struggle with this, where we try to make something happen in the spiritual sense with, flesh, with fleshly means. And salvation is an, in, it's an invisible, spiritual thing through and through, and to be born again puts a source of the miracle in God's hands and not ours. And so when we try to compute things, including the salvation of others, only in human terms... We're going to hit a brick wall every time. You're going to be disappointed over and over again. And that truly is no way to live. A person can only be saved by understanding that the Holy Spirit is the power behind their hearts, turning from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, which is, if you just think about that analogy, is impossible for mankind to do. But really, it's spiritually meaning to bring from death into life. There is power in being born again. Ezekiel 36, there's a new heart, a new course. Of course, after regeneration, there lies the Christian life and the Christian experience to be lived out. But through our union with Christ, of course, we seek to obey. We come every Sunday to worship our God and worship with every bit of our lives. We want to love God and love others. We want to mortify, uh, uh, you know, um, the sin in us, but only through Christ and his finished work. And that's all an outflow of our regenerated hearts, a new creation filled with new delighting and new affection. Every time I have a new affection for God, a new delight in the things of God, I never, I'm like, wow, I'm just really just mature now. No, I know that this is the spirit in me. There are poignant moments in my life or maybe even recently when I said, God, I just love you. I know that there is nothing in me that could want to say that except God in me. And this seems to eventually have happened with Nicodemus. Don't you get so frustrated uh, to hear the beginning dramatic bits of a story? 
but then the scene cuts out and you never get to hear what happens. On, in, uh, uh, on social media, there's all these videos now, like short 15 second clips. Here's this dog that's stranded on the road and oh, we're gonna protect it, we're gonna, we're gonna clean him up, we're gonna uh, cut his hair. And then the video just ends. I'm like, well, <laughs> give me more, I wanna see the end product. But that's kind of like what happens here. Oh, but if we had the scrapbook of Nicodemus, and we get to just kind of see what happened after that, well, we do, if you just read through the rest of John. Not every chapter, not every page, but we get glimpses of Nicodemus coming back on the scene to hear what happens after this brief conversation. You see, since Nicodemus comes up later in the Gospel of John, and even at the end, when he helps in a very honorable, respectful way with Jesus' burial, many believe that Nicodemus actually became a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and not someone who was just socially favorable toward him. And so it's really cool to see, including for anyone here who believes in Christ, when you look back at the beginning steps of the faith journey, because we all start somewhere. And from God's perspective, that process started from before the creation of the world. But for us, from our viewpoint, what a joy to walk through and trace all the things that have transpired when God was wooing you to him. You know, when I look back at my own spiritual scrapbook, I often shake my head in disbelief at how God saved me. You know, nothing crazy happened with my conversion like some other people might have. But just simply looking at my wretched life, how God snatched me from fiery damnation with all my sinfulness, I knew, with all my rebellion against him, for God to save me, and not just save me, but yank me out of the miry pit and set me on a new life with a new heart. I marvel at how merciful and gracious my God is towards me. You see, looking at your spiritual scrapbook can remind you of the motivation to then live a Christ-centered, grace-centered life. I knew I didn't need just some self-help. I, I knew I didn't need just better discipline or more morality to save me. I realized those things were just false assurances and dead ends. I knew I needed Christ and 100% him alone, not just at the point of rebirth, but forevermore. You see, remembering Christ and his love for you is never a wasted time. It's never wasted time. It's never a bad move. And I'll just emphasize that with, with two quick illustrations. You know, I've seen some social media posts where a girl would, would make her significant other sit down, and maybe it's her husband, and constantly retelling the story when they first met, how they fell in love and so forth. And she would uh, sit there with such eagerness, and, and the video is just showing kind of a, uh, a recapturing of that. Uh, so she sits with so much anticipation as he retells the story for probably the 10,000th time, and she's laughing, and she's probably crying, and she's swooning over all the details she already knew. Oh, friends, I would hope that, that we would have the same joyful remembrance too and not take for granted our salvation journey, our salvation story. You know, I was watching a reality show. I know some of you guys were recommending this to me, just documenting the lives of Formula One drivers. I'm not a racing fan, but everyone kept telling me, you got to watch this, you got to watch this. And so I did. And these Formula One drivers would compete against one another in cars that go up to 200 miles per hour, you know, something like that. Some of you guys do that on I-90. But the most competitive and prestigious 
racing sport in the world, they are putting their lives at stake each and every practice run, and of course during the main event itself, and one of the seasons had uh, really, a, uh, in real life, a driver dying from a crash. But one of the seasons I was watching, during a, t a typical racing day event, a driver spun out, and of course, on the, on the racing course and sped, sped straight into a wall. The car, it was just mesmerizing to see. It just split in half immediately, and the flames didn't just grow. It was just on fire immediately, just engulfing the whole thing. And all the driving teams, the spectators, announcers, and, and the viewers, I imagine, thought the worst. I mean, it wasn't just 10 seconds. I mean, it was like minutes long. And when I was watching this, because I, know, I knew another driver previous season died, I was like, man... This is crazy. But then the minutes go by and the red hot flames engulfing everything, only to suddenly see the driver pop out and be helped away from the flames. He survived with only some pretty bad burns on his hands, but nonetheless, a life that would go on. And so weeks go by and he's getting better and he decides to retire from racing. In an interview, he said that he had a, he was like, you know what, guys, I had a second birth. And he says, I, I see life so differently now, a different perspective. And he was ready to live that out, of course, with his family in mind and so forth. And he was saying all this with a big, grateful smile because, you know, it was, it was everything he was living for, but it was okay. He had, a, he had a rebirth. He had a thankful spirit because he knew he escaped certain death on that day. I say that because, friends, you must be born again. And let's never forget, kind of like this driver did, what it was like to be born again. And that by God's sheer grace, we are still following him to this day. And that God has set us on a new course in him. You see, in any culture that has embraced Christianity over the, the centuries, when the years go by, and we've seen that here in the United States, we've seen this in Europe, we've seen this in nations impacted by the Reformation so deeply in the 16th century, but now abandoned God to what I see happening in, in South Korea even right now, when true, genuine, born-again faith is replaced with simply culturally admiring Jesus, you'll eventually see many people just simply walking away and saying, I'm done with this. In many parts of those countries that I just listed, even admiring Jesus, or let's say admiring Christianity, that's not even a given anymore. It's actually probably headed towards more the opposite feelings. And so the mission then is to not make people simply admire Jesus again, but to pray for people to be born again. Yes, the church universal can only sow the seeds, but only God alone can save the soul. But it's not just persuading people to like Jesus again. Saying this another way, we can't nurture people or brainwash people into believing. We need to pray for the miracle of the regenerating work of the Spirit in people's lives. And some of you at this point might have not placed that trust in him yet. Maybe you're streaming, maybe you're here today. Perhaps you're still in the early Nicodemus stage, contemplating, trying to unravel the theological questions you might have. Oh, I urge you to call upon the Lord and ask for salvation. I urge you to speak with someone who has been walking in the faith to help you and I pray that God would grant you the gift to truly believe. Oh, I don't want to brainwash you. None of us do. I don't want to just kind of persuade you socially to be favorable towards God. We want to pray that your heart is reborn.
Perhaps then you can too say, oh, I have a second life now. All because of the forgiving and saving work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to make me reborn. And then just like any of us who believe, to go on living, we sang this earlier, rejoicing, to be thankful, to be consumed by his love all the days of your life. And yes, forevermore. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who do believe, who do place their whole trust in the finished work of the Son, Jesus Christ, oh God, would you fill us with everlasting joy. Oh, as we look back at the scrapbook of our lives, not just the physical years that have gone by, but how you have wooed us and how you have drawn us to you, have you called us and saved us and justified us and adopted us as the sons and daughters of you and then sanctifying us until we are fully glorified with you forevermore in heaven. God, help us to look back with just sheer joy. And thank you, Lord, for the pointed phrase of you must be born again, for there are no options, there are no other ways, there are no other shortcuts to you to see the, or enter the kingdom of God. Help us to understand that to comprehend that, of course, only by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name.